Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and History podcast. I'm Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Akinyeye Umoja, who is a a professor and chair of the Department of the African American Studies at Georgia State University. We will be speaking about his new book, We Will Shoot Back, Armed Resistance in the Mississippi Freedom Movement. Uh, This book was published by New York University Press in 2013. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Christine. And it's Akin Yele. Thank you. I'm sorry for my mispronunciations (laughs) there. Um, I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and how you came to be a scholar and a historian. Wow, that's a long story. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm um, originally born in Los Angeles, California. Uh, My parents... Um, both have interesting histories as far as I'm concerned. But my father was a minister. He actually was a sharecropper when he grew up in the Mississippi Delta. And some of the inspiration from the book comes from the fact that um, he was a sharecropper. But he told me a story when he was a young man that uh, he saw a black man's body hanging from a water tower. A black man had been lynched. And my grandfather went to get a rifle to shoot the first white person he saw after seeing this black man's body who had been lynched. And uh, my uh, the family tackled my grandfather and disarmed him uh, because they were fearful that the whole family would be lynched and my grandfather had retaliated. But hearing this story as a young person, it kind of, um, you know, I was... Interesting because I never heard of blacks in the South growing up in California during the time I grew up and I was I'm 60 years old now. I was born in 1954. Uh, so I lived during my most of my youth was doing the civil rights and the black power era. But I never heard of black blacks in the in the South resisting, uh, particularly with guns. And so um, I was intrigued by that. But on the other hand, I understood the fear and intimidation the family felt. Uh, so that's part of what drives the story. The book was uh, the story of black people overcoming uh, their oppressors, but breaking the fear to be able to do that. And what role did guns and armed resistance play in that? Um, so that's what inspires part of the book. But going back to myself and how I became a scholar, I really see myself as a scholar activist Um as I said, I'm a child of the civil rights and black power movement. And so that sort of inspired me when I graduated from high school to get involved in the movement, even first as a student activist. But, you know, at a point I drop out of school and become more active in the community, uh, in community activism. And but then um, people in, in the movement kept on encouraging me particularly because I used to write a lot in movement publications, you need to go back to school. You need to get credentials. You need uh, you need to teach. 
uh, things of that nature. And so uh, particularly as I became a husband and a father and needed to make an income, it's something I like to do. <laughs> it, you know, encouraged me to go back to school, get my credentials and I guess being a part of the student movement, um, African-American or black studies was a, a, a nice home for me to exist in since that that uh, field of study was started through student activism. And so that that kind of in a nutshell, how I got to the place I'm at today. OK. And so you had an interest in this topic even before you became a scholar. So how Most did you? Definitely. How Most definitely. There's some other, uh, even other one, the story about my father. Uh-huh. Um, when I was a student activist, um, I visited the South. I was a part of a student organization, and there were two uh, people I met, um, Dara Abubakari. She's also known as Virginia Collins. Uh, she's a, was a member of the Republic of New Africa. She was a, a child of Garvey H. And her son, Walter Collins, who was a member of SNCC and was a... Um, uh, a, a, a war resistor during the Vietnam War era. But they started telling me stories when I met them in Atlanta and I was riding with them to New Orleans about black people being armed and uh, when they had nonviolent demonstrations, black people being uh, bystanders with weapons to protect the nonviolent folk. They talked about weapons being buried in rural areas in, in case it was that type of uh, a need for um, the, this arsenal that, that, you know, activists were hiding and so or concealing. And so, I, you know, I just never heard these stories. And so when I went to graduate school, I decided to write a paper about it. And uh, one of my professors said, man, that would make a great dissertation. <laughs> so that's how I, how I get started. Okay. Idea. As, you- as well as uh, one other thing, I met activists. So my chapter eight looks at the United League of Mississippi. And I was actually able to meet people in that organization and visited this Mississippi during that time and interacted with folks. So some of the things I talked about in that chapter, I actually witnessed. That's great. So did you do a lot of interviews for this project or how did you go about um, finding the information and what sort of research did you do? Oral history was essential. Uh, because a lot of this wasn't documented in other secondary um, uh, uh, works that's been done. Uh, but the problem is, you know, if you get one story, then you got to get that corroborated. So I did oral, a significant amount of oral history, some to, uh, to corroborate the oral testimony of others. And then finally, I, I looked at um, surveillance records of people in the movement. I looked at uh, the COINTELPRO documents of people in the movement. I looked at uh, newspapers and other sources I, I could get to corroborate the oral testimony, mm-hmm. as well as or, or records of organizations. So I was I looked extensively at the records of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Congress of Racial Equality, as well as the NAACP and so. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what you found when you got into this Research and you got into actually looking at the records, doing the formal or oral histories, and all of that kind of research. So your book makes an argument that armed resistance is much more important than what we normally think about. Of most of the stories we hear about uh, the 
Black Freedom Struggle in Mississippi. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about the role of armed resistance in the lives of Black Mississippians, as well as in the freedom struggle. And it seems to me, of course, that role changes over time, that maybe we could start with the early 1960s, the sort of period when we normally think about the movement as being characterized mostly by nonviolence. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, and, and I would agree, nonviolence uh, actually as a, uh, uh, a practice in the black struggle it really emerges in the 1940s with Congress for Racial Equality. But it doesn't come to the South until it's practiced in the Montgomery bus boycott in the 50s. But it doesn't come to Mississippi to 1961. Prior to that in Mississippi, the movement kind of emerges really in the um, early 1950s with a group called the Regional Council of Negro Leadership. And uh, that organization uh, uh, was headed by a black man, a doctor by the name of T.R.M. Howard. And Dr. Howard would always have uh, a group of people around him who were armed. Number one, he was one of the wealthiest black men in Mississippi, so he could afford armed security uh, that he paid for. But he also had people in the community who were willing to protect him. And he finally had, uh, would carry guns himself. Uh, sometimes that he would conceal because he was concerned about being disarmed, by, even though it was legal to carry arms. But he was concerned about being uh, 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 arms taken away from him so he wouldn't be able to protect himself. Um, uh, one of Dr. Howard's lieutenants was Megger Evers, who was also known to be armed. Megger Evers, though, would oftentimes, particularly after he became a national uh, representative of the NAACP in the state, uh, or the state representative paid by the national NAACP, he was more conciliatory about his carrying a weapon, so he didn't talk about it as much. But uh, some of the nonviolent activists I interviewed said that uh, Megger Evers would say they were crazy if they weren't armed. Um, so, but that just shows in the early fifties, there was a practice of carrying arms in the 1960s. You have really in 1961, you have Bob Robert Moses, uh, the legendary activist who was a first non uh, proclaimed nonviolent activist who would come to Mississippi. And oftentimes there was a little tension, at least early on between Bob and some of the, the local activists, uh, indigenous activists there. Uh, one particular man by the name of E.W. Steptoe, who Bob and Mr. Steptoe would get into these debates about whether Mr. Steptoe should be armed or not. And Bob thought that, that you know, he wanted to debate, but Mr. Steptoe just didn't talk about it anymore and hid the guns from Bob. But that uh, I think Bob found out after a while that you had to, particularly Snick's strategy following from the great Ella Baker, of relying upon the local population and taking leadership from them. Uh, he found that they had to um, rely upon local people for their protection, number one, but also that local people weren't going to change and local people weren't necessarily going to be nonviolent. Uh, as Bob would say, um, when I interviewed him, he said local people carried the day. And so they carried the day in terms of how guns were going to be used and what role they were going to have in the movement in Mississippi. And actually in Mississippi, there wasn't a lot of nonviolent direct action. There was some, <clears throat> excuse me, but there was a lot of concentration on organizing communities and um, 
uh, uh, preparing people to, to participate in voter registration efforts. So it wasn't the same amount of demonstrations that you might have seen in other places, but more emphasis on organizing. And because of that, most, most of the self-defense was emphasized on protecting people's homes. I'm excuse me for mm-hmm. I thought I, I thought I had turned that off. Protecting people's homes, uh, protecting individuals in the movement, and protecting in uh, institutions like churches and other institutions, the freedom houses and other institutions of the movement. And so, uh, even enterprises, uh, there were there were certain entrepreneurs who would support the movement. For instance, in Macomb, Mississippi, you had a, a, a woman who. Provided had a restaurant and she allowed movement people to eat there for free. So um, those type of institutions uh, were protected by community folk. And would you say that this armed resistance was effective? Almost oh, definitely. Uh, and I, I argued that the organizers would not have been able to organize around a voter registration without they wouldn't have been able to survive. What I, they would have been driven out of town without the armed resistance. I also say argue this in the book that after 1964 in Mississippi, there's a, a movement where, or there's a change. Prior to that, people were more conciliatory about the carrying of, of guns. But um, after 1964, um, people are more... Open. In fact, there's an advocacy of armed resistance that, that takes place after 1964. And so there's a, a, a change in that. And I think that advocacy, to some way, uh, as well as the um, addition of maybe paramilitary organization in some places, would com- combine with economic boycotts, I think were most effective in making uh, a racial and cultural change in Mississippi. Okay. Um- I want to talk some more about those, but um, before we do, I was wondering if you might talk a little bit more about those tensions between the nonviolent um, organizations and the local activists. I mean, as you say, the local sort of carry the day, but what, how do you see the effects of those tensions long-term on these organizations? Actually, um, Long term, I think that they, the organizations were transformed, uh, so they weren't exclusively nonviolent. And, and that when I say the organizations, we're specifically talking about the Congress of Racial Equality and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which were nonviolent organizations, right? Uh, uh, the NAACP never was really a nonviolent organization. In fact, even prior to what we classically call the Civil Rights Movement, they had uh, supported Black people who had defended themselves, they had legally legal support and other support of black folks who defended themselves. And many of the leaders of the uh, are, are local or local level people in NAACP carry guns, and it was the way they live. But uh, but SNCC and CORE were nonviolent organizations. But what you began to happen, what began to happen is number one, after the initial tension, they began to rely on local people for protection. And that that protection, um, you know, they kind of relaxed their stance, at least in terms of local people. But then you also began to have within the organization, both organizations, debates about whether they should be nonviolent or not or members should carry guns or not. 
So, for instance, in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1964, you have a debate in June in that organization about whether organizers should carry guns or not. And they went back and forth. Uh, some felt they should carry guns or they should not because they felt that that would invite more uh, repression and they might lose the, uh, any uh, support they might have from uh, from uh, liberals up north or the government if they knew they had guns. Others argued that, uh, that there were death threats on members of the organization, on local people, and uh, if they didn't arm themselves, they would be wiped out, and the, and the federal government had shown itself unwilling to protect members of the movement. It, so it was a, a debate in the organization. It came down to uh, one member of the organization asking a question. This man's name is Charles Cobb, and who's recently written a book on this question of, of armed self-defense in the movement called uh, uh, That Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. Okay, but Charles Cobb asked the question, what would happen if, if a SNCC member is in a, in a room, or in a house, excuse me, and uh, the Klan attacks the house, they kill the local male leader and his, his wife and daughter in the house, and the gun's laying there, and the Klan is coming in the house. Would I be expelled from SNCC if I pick up this gun and defend Mr. Steptoe's family or Mr. Turnbull's family or whoever that might be? The room was kind of silent. It was kind of tense. Then the great Ella Baker said, she intervenes and said, if SNCC would expel Charles Cobb for defending Mr. Steptoe's family, it's not the organization I thought it would be. So that was a kind of a critical point in this debate. Um, so the organization didn't reject nonviolence, but it was an embrace, again, of uh, self-defense. Uh, and that, the same thing happened in Congress of Racial Equality. I, and again, I think they're in, my argument is their interaction with people there on the ground, who that's how they're surviving day to day. It has an influence on these younger activists in the organization. And so I think it transforms both groups. And I think that's what's significant. Okay. And where did this tradition of armed resistance come from? Is it and a related question? How specific is it to Mississippi? Well, I think it's not just Mississippi, it's Southern. I think similar studies can be made in Louisiana, in Virginia, in Georgia, you know, other places in the South. It was just that when I began my study, I had so much data in Mississippi, I decided just to focus there or I could write several volumes on this question. Uh, so there are other examples of the places. I think uh, there's a couple of things that converge to bring it together. I think one is uh, you have uh, authors like John Thornton and um, Walter Rucker who written on African tra- systems of tradition, of, excuse me, of resistance, continuing with people who were brought here. Many of the uh, captives who were brought here and who were enslaved here were actually soldiers uh, in Africa, right? And they were captured and and brought to the United States, which begins a martial tradition that goes inside of uh, many of the rebellions that we saw in our early history here in the United States. So you have that tradition, but you also have a frontier tradition uh, and also a tradition that citizenship was 
in in early America, colonial and uh, 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 in the early decades of American citizenship or, or the American Republic, excuse me, um, was considered uh, gun ownership was attached to citizenship, and it was considered a right. Uh, particularly in a frontier tradition and people relying upon weapons to defend themselves. And certainly the South itself has that legacy, right? And so blacks were armed, uh, uh, armed uh, when they could, because oftentimes you know that there was an attempt going back to slavery to make sure black people didn't have guns. And so, uh, but I think with emancipation and with um, the pursuit of citizenship, Black people felt that they needed to be armed. And in that frontier traditions, uh, for instance, you know, I interviewed some elders who said, and, there, you know, there's a black aspect to this. Uh, there are, you know, not only do black people have weapons to hunt, but, for instance, I, I talked to some older women who said that uh, their fathers taught them how to shoot because they were concerned about white rapists. And so it, it was seen as a means of survival. Um, so... Um, Outside of even uh, thought of African continuity or inf- uh, influence, and even outside of the frontier tradition, is the people just looking at things basically to protect themselves in a hostile situation. And certainly, American South was a hostile situation, a hostile environment for Black people um, during that period. Mm-hmm. And is there also a rural component to this? Is this something that's particularly prominent in uh, perhaps going along with the frontier tradition, right. particularly the, prominent in the, the rural tradition? Okay. You know, it's a rural situation. Mm-hmm. So people, um, when you don't have um, a, well, a state uh, apparatus that is supposed to provide these things for citizens, it's not that widely uh, that's not that extensive then people feel they have to protect themselves mm-hmm. and so yes yeah, it's, it's, it's connected to that but in the, in the black situation you also had the dynamic is even if you had a had a, that state apparatus you can't depend upon it for protection right might be worse to have that state apparatus right there. <laughs> right. right okay witnessing the day right um so after 64 going into 65 and beyond as you already mentioned the the combination of a more active um, advocacy of armed resistance or um, the use of arms for activism as well as economic uh, campaigns came together to be pretty effective could you talk a little bit about perhaps a particular campaign that you thought was effective or how that worked Okay, well, I think that strategy was developed in a place called Natchez, Mississippi. Natchez is in southwest Mississippi. Um, Natchez prior to uh, or during the antebellum period was a center of cotton. But when cotton spread through other parts of the state, and particularly the Mississippi Delta, the economy declined. And so um, Natchez became kind of was reborn economically. Uh, when you had uh, several uh, manufacturing industries move to Natchez, Mississippi in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, or really post-World War II period. And so when that happened, you had population coming to Natchez, black pop, black people and white people. And there were some uh, people and there were some industries in which whites thought 
certain jobs should be reserved for white people. Uh, with that and with the, the populations coming there, Natchez had a very high concentration of Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist activity. Um, it even led to 1963-64, there were several cases of assaults on black people uh, there in Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, this kind of culminates in 1965, August of 1965, when one of the leaders of the NAACP, uh, uh, George Metcalf, who's working at um, the Armstrong Tire and Rubber Plant, he uh, is asked to work overtime. He's also, I forgot to mention, he's also promoted to be a foreman, a job reserved for a white man. He goes to his car when he comes off his overtime shift. He turns on the ignition and the car explodes. Fortunately, he survived this explosion, but it was it was about to be a spontaneous uprising, which I call, but, you know, some people call them riots. But, uh, you know, a rebellion was about to occur. And the NAACP comes on the scene. Charles Evers, who was the state leader of the NAACP at that time, the brother of Mega Evers, he said the Negroes have taken all they could take. We're armed ourselves and, you know, we're ready to fight back. Uh, when that occurs, um, around the same time, you have the development of this group called the Deacons for Defense. Uh, the Deacons had actually developed in Louisiana, but they had developed a group. There, a, de- a group of Deacons had developed in Natchez, Mississippi. And what I argue the Natchez model is, is Everett's call for economic boycott, which is one element, right? He also openly advocated armed resistance, which is another aspect of the model. Um, uh, the final piece of it was the use of a forces squad to make sure the black people did not break the boycott. And a gentleman by the name who moved to Mississippi from Cleveland, or really Chicago, by the name of Rudy Shields, he was the most effective organizer of these enforcer groups. But after you saw that boycott in Natchez, uh, which was effective in getting basic demands for black people, you saw it in several parts of the state utilizing the same model. Sometimes you might not have the deacons, but it would be the threat of violence and or a more aggressively armed uh, black community. Uh, so uh, you would see it in places like Port Gibson, Mississippi, where there was a uh, a historic boycott documented by uh, historian Emily Crosby um, in her book, uh, Common Courtesy. Uh, you, you see it in uh, several rural places. You see it in Fayette, Mississippi, which later became the home of of, uh, of Charles Evers. You see it in the Mississippi Delta in places like Belzoni, Belzoni and in Yazoo County. You see it all over the state. In fact, there were dozens of other boycotts that utilize this model. And I would argue that uh, uh, variations of this model were used from 1965 all the way through the late 70s, where you have an economic boycott that you have uh, black people no longer using nonviolent rhetoric, and but using a rhetoric saying, if you attack us, we're going to attack you back, but also being more aggressively armed and more visibly armed. Mm-hmm. And how long does this approach as a Natchez model continue to be? Um, a major part of activism of the black freedom struggle in Mississippi. Like I said, from 1965 all the way through at least 1979, okay. uh, you see, you see it being used. The final uh, place that I think you had major campaigns utilizing that strategy 
would be in Mississippi, in uh, northern Mississippi with the United League and places like Tupelo, where in 1978 and 79, uh, Tupelo, uh, you know, the home of Elvis Presley was shut down uh, in terms of its uh, financial district and commercial district. Uh, you would see it in places like Holly Springs, Mississippi. You would see it in Oklahoma, Mississippi, that model being used. Uh, so it, I think it had a uh, significant effect, but I think somehow um, up until this book, um, historians have missed that pattern and seen how effective it was as a social movement model for black people in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And why do you think that is? Why have we missed this pattern? Why don't we talk about it as much? Well, I think until a recent trend of historians, uh, people haven't looked at armed resistance as much. Uh, So, um, um, you know, you have books like um, Tim Tyson's uh, Radio Free Dixie. You have Lance Hill's um, Deacons for Defense. Uh, you, uh, of course, I mentioned Charles Cobb's book just recently come out. In my book, uh, they kind of, uh, or we will shoot back, they kind of fit a, tra- a new uh, uh, tradition among civil rights historians or su- uh, movement historians who began to look and embrace armed resistance and look at its efficacy in the movement. It's not just some, um, uh, what do you call it? It's just not something that happened on the periphery. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, one of the things I tried to do what we would shoot back this show is not it wasn't exceptional because uh, um, one of the arguments I made, even with people knowing about Robert Williams or the Deacons, sometimes people think about them as even exceptional, given what happened in the movement. But so I tried to show unsung people and, and people who are oftentimes attached with with SNCC and CORE, but they're not um, well-known members. They're not spokespersons. They just grassroots folks who kind of complemented their work on a local level mm-hmm. to show how this was actually uh, connected to the actual culture of people in Mississippi. And so um, I, I, and I think another thing, too, is um, the latest wave of historians, we've tended to look at the, the grassroots and local uh, movement a little bit more. Uh, works that precede mine, like uh, John Dittmer's Local People or... or um, uh, Charles Payne's, uh, I'm forgetting the name of his book right now, Charles mm-hmm. Payne's right. book on the Mississippi movement. I think they the kind of opened the way for others of us, like uh, uh, Emily Crosby, like um, Hassan Jeffries, who looks at Alabama and looks at Lyons County. It kind of opened the way for us to begin to look at things more from the bottom up, from the grassroots level. And then you kind of get a different perspective than when you're, if you're just talking about Dr. King. You know, that's a whole different um, element of the movement, right, who's approaching things maybe more from top down and their national organizations coming to local communities. We're actually looking at local people themselves. And um, I think there was a lot of change that happened locally. You know, uh, some historians traditionally looked at major legislative change like the Voting Rights Act. So even when we see the movie Selma, it talks about, a change that happened where voting of uh, uh, the Voting Rights Act was implemented. But if you go to Selma today, a lot of people will tell you some of the same conditions in Selma exist today that existed in 1965 because there was this Voting Rights Act. But, it, you know, the movement on a local level 
may be focused on these large demonstrations uh, that got media attention, but they didn't focus on change on the ground, right? And change uh, with the municipal government. Uh, so, you know, I think I think our uh, this new wave kind of addresses that, and and we will shoot back kind of falls within within that tradition. Mm-hmm. So, I have another question that's not the precise focus of your book, but you mention um, in the book that in the earlier debates uh, within SNCC, for instance, that one of the arguments for nonviolence was uh, sort of the optics of the movement, right? The way it will look for white liberals or to the North. And of course the media is a major part of nonviolence. Um, So what did people think or how visible was this type of action outside of Mississippi? How much did people in, I don't know, Illinois or Chicago or whatnot um, know about what was happening in Natchez? Did it make a difference to them? Did right. armed resistance affect their opinion of the movement? I think it only, uh, it, it most, mostly might have made an impact through movement networks. And I think even prior to, um, even prior to uh, what we observe in Mississippi, for instance, when we talk about Robert Williams in North Carolina, there was a, there were a network of activists, black and white, usually more radical, who would begin to promote the work of his uh, self-defense efforts to fight the Klan in North Carolina in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Similarly, uh, when you had the activity happening, for instance, in Natchez, the Natchez deacons, through their own networks, began to go to California and raise money. But there were more grassroots efforts. Uh, they, they, they didn't get promoted uh, necessarily in Time magazine or the New York Times. New York Times might have mentioned some of the armed resistance activity, but it was more like, well, wow, this is a threat. Because, you know, blacks are beginning to talk more about guns and, you know, in the South and what's beginning to happen. But it wasn't like a uh, the same type of local uh, or day-to-day coverage of their activities you might get, uh, say, like from a, how the New York Times may have covered Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. But through the, their grassroots efforts, they would get support and blacks in other places would find out what they're what they were doing. As, uh, uh, as well as it, it, it might have uh, been communicated, particularly through uh, aspects of the left. And so they will get support for their activities through, uh, through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, that, uh, I think that was why you might have some exceptions. For instance, Jet Magazine did cover the activities of the deacons in Mississippi at, at several times. Um, but again, as a researcher, too, this is what makes it a little bit more challenging challenging for someone like me. I had to kind of dig deep. I had to interview people, mm-hmm. even find out about these things. And so, um, yeah, I will, I will, I will make that argument. Okay. And what about the black power movement in Mississippi and the right. other, um, I think you earlier called them more paramilitary organizations that are right. developing in the late 1960s as well. What was their role? Um, how did they fit into the story? Well, this aspect, actually, particularly if you talk about, as I mentioned, after 1965, and I think a lot of this is connected to, um, in 1964, of course, you have Fannie Lou Hamer and others going to the Democratic Party convention, the National Convention in Atlantic City, and trying to get 
support from the Democratic Party to seat the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And that doesn't happen. Right. Um, They only offered them two seats, which Fannie Lou and other grassroots leadership rejected. But it was kind of a signal that we can't really rely on the federal government. And this is coming behind um, uh, years of SNCC activists, core activists in Mississippi asking for protection, requesting intervention from the federal government, and it not really happening to the level that they wanted it to happen. And so self-defense is kind of uh, something that's embraced because people felt they had to rely on their own efforts to defend themselves. This sort of goes with the trend toward black power, right? That black people need to be more self-determining and and relying upon their own resources, right? Rather than, um, as the term they would use at the time, begging the federal government to come down and do something for us. And so it was kind of, it's kind of consistent with that motion. So you have people who are part of that in Mississippi, uh, actually, uh, the Mr. Rudy Shields, who I mentioned earlier, and others becoming a part of this Mississippi orientation toward black power. Uh, they continue to work on things in terms of voting rights. They continue to work on things in terms of black electoral power. They continue to work on even when it's desegregation of schools. OK, how can we when we desegregate the schools, get black administrative leadership in these schools? How can a black community determine what's going to happen uh, in our school system uh, that fits our interests? Because, you know, when they desegregated a lot, a lot of times it didn't happen. What was beneficial to black communities or even black educators? Finally, I think uh, even in terms of education, the emphasis on identity that we need to have black studies, we need to have African-American history in our school for our children. So you do have this kind of Mississippi aspect of the black power movement that begins to develop. And uh, of course, defending oneself and defending the community was was actually an aspect of that. So it happens in those ways. And another aspect is with a northern group who comes to Mississippi and that some Mississippi activists began to identify with. And that was the Republic of New Africa who uh, uh, attempted to come to Mississippi um, to uh, work, uh, particularly in black majority counties in Mississippi, to uh, get some form of sovereignty and independence for black people in those areas. Of course, it was shut down by the FBI, was brutally uh, repressed. Um, um, uh, Christian Davenport just wrote a book on that uh, that talks about the repression of the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa. Uh, But there were some local activists who identified with it. Some some got involved and some just supported it and saw it as an ally to their movement there. So black, Black Power, and I think that's another difference and we will shoot back in some of the other books that looked at armed resistance in, in the South is uh, they really don't focus on the black power period of the movement. I will also say that in black power, there were some groups that looked to uh, some aspect of guerrilla warfare, even um, that you saw uh, develop in Mississippi during that period of time so on a smaller level, not as broad as the armed resistance tradition, but it's, it certainly existed. And so that was another aspect of black power that uh, was a part of Mississippi movement. Okay. And how much connection besides the group that you were just discussing um, was there between the black power in Mississippi and all of the strains you were just talking about and black power activists in California or in Northern urban 
areas? The only place I saw it really had, well, a couple of connections. First is you had uh, the Revolutionary Action Movement, which is really in the early period, 1964, before we had traditionally have what we have black power, uh, talk about black power, is they attempted to um, set up networks and improve those networks we talked about before that would support armed resistance in the South. Um, and, and they tried to raise money and whatever and set up a connection where people from the North would support them. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the Republic of New Africa, but then you had other groups who really didn't look at the South, particularly the rural South, as strategic. So, for instance, uh, Rudy Shields, who we mentioned earlier, corresponded and attempted to get uh, Huey Newton of the Black Panther Party to come to Mississippi on a couple of occasions and got really got no uh, response because many of the northern uh, black power act- activists are looking at the north. They're looking at urban centers. They're looking at, you know, uh, Oakland. They're looking at South Central Los Angeles. They're looking at Harlem. And they're not really that much concerned about what's happening in Mississippi. Uh, so when you had folks reach out, they didn't get that response, with the exception of the Republic of New Africa, who saw Mississippi as central. Mm-hmm. And so they, they began to move people there and things of that nature. Uh, but the FBI didn't allow them to exist long enough to organize there. I mean, they still exist in name today, but um, not in the same dynamic way that they existed in uh, 1971. Mm-hmm. And so what happens to these movements? Um, I, I argue this. I argue that particularly with blacks getting an electoral power, because even in the early 70s, uh, you can see that there wasn't a lot of advance in terms of the uh, uh, Voting Rights Act. But when black people begin to elect mayors, when they elect sheriffs, uh, there wasn't seen to be a need for these armed groups as you had prior to that. So that's one of the things that begins to happen. Uh, there is also the element of repression against uh, uh, some movements. And so you have some people, uh, for instance, the Republic of New Africa, that even included a few local people, uh, were, were political prisoners for a particular period of time. And um, I think just with the attack on resources, some movements, you just had uh, cynicism develop over a period of time. But you have all these things, so the movements don't didn't exist in the same dynamic way that they, uh, by mid seventies as they did in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. Like with the exception, I argue, of the United League of Mississippi, which existed until nineteen seventy nine eighty, and then it begins to uh, 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 crumble. I think because of division um, within the movement itself, I would argue uh, that it begins to decline in terms of its influence because of its own internal contradictions. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, as you started out, you talk about um, yourself as a scholar activist, and I assume you teach as well uh, in your position. So I'm curious if you might talk a little bit about how this scholarship influences those other two roles for you. How does this influence the way you teach? I mean, I'm sure, of course, you teach about Mississippi and what happened in Mississippi, right. but how it influences uh, the way you and other historians might teach about the broader idea of the civil rights movement, how it should change our narrative, how it, and then how it influences your activism as well. Well, in terms of my teaching and uh, how I explore it with my uh, students is we look at the historiography, right? We look at how it was previously 
looked at in terms of arm resistance, how it's changed. And then I might uh, challenge the, uh, the students to look at competing narratives and evaluate them themselves and see what the, uh, if there is a change in the narrative, uh, how do the sources uh, influence the change, right? And so uh, we look at it in, in, that, in that way. Uh, so they can begin to look for sources in other areas that might change how we look at things. But the importance of, of, of the sources and what the sources are saying and how we interpret the sources. Uh, so that's one way as a, as a teacher, just to teach them exactly what I felt I did, right? No, number two, in terms of my activism, what I do, I know I was just in a conversation the other day um, uh, with Ferguson happening today, with Baltimore happening, and then with the spontaneous uh, rebellions that occurred there. Um, the question, well, how do nonviolent activists relate to this? Uh, and so we look at how there was tension before, but how there was complementarity. We also look at, you know, sometimes people condemn the, um, the spontaneous rebellions. And I show them historically how, uh, so for instance, in my book, we talk about a bombing campaign that existed in Macomb, Mississippi in 1964. And in that bombing campaign, um, there was dynamiting campaign that was done by the Ku Klux Klan or a section of the Ku Klux Klan. The federal government didn't seem to respond to it uh, like it was serious. Uh, why did I say that? Because there was a um, um, there was a uh, what do you call it? A contingent of twelve FBI agents in Macomb. That in the midst of the bombing campaign, it was dropped to four, and it was only after a spontaneous uprising in Macomb that President Johnson called the leaders of Macomb to come meet with him. And they were able to arrest the Ku Klux Klansmen within seven days of that meeting. But it was only after the spontaneous rebellion was this seen by the federal government as something serious. So one of the things I argue to people today is when people condemn people who are spontaneously um, fighting and rebelling is, no, we don't condemn that. As Martin Luther King said, this is the language of the unheard. These people just haven't been organized before. And maybe they could do something a little bit more effectively if they were organized. But no, they're unheard. Um, let's recognize them for that and try to organize people. And it doesn't have to be worse. It's in competition with people who are doing nonviolent resistance. In fact, the argument I make is some of the nonviolent resistance we see in a place like Ferguson uh, became uh, spontaneous uh, uh, a rebellion because they were attacked by police, right? People mm-hmm. tear gas and things of that nature. And they're just trying to survive out there and make sure that they can make it to the next day. Uh, so I, I, I think it's a call, uh, uh, should be a call. My research informs it should be a call for more organization of grassroots people too, to have more effective resistance. Like we saw in the Natchez model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I uh, teach, in Texas, in um, a area that's relatively uh, conservative, and there's not a lot of activism. And I think oftentimes when I'm teaching about movements um, and teaching about civil rights and teaching about even earlier sorts of Black activism, often students are, are often they wonder if 
some of the violence inflicted on activists is sort of brought upon activists by right. their own activity. And I think this is a really um, interesting way to answer that question or a really great body of research to say, look, it's not the case that nonviolent activists get results and people who have used any sort of armed resistance or anything like that don't, right? That seems to right. often be the image that my students have when they're in my class. And I think this provides a really, really good way to respond to that. Because that's always a question that I struggle with how to answer to say, no, that's not exactly right. the image, but I don't always have quite the perfect examples to give to them. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for contributing that. Yeah. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time. So our traditional last question is, what are you working on now? Well, what I'm working on now, actually, I'm working on several projects. But one of them is uh, extending from Mississippi. As, uh, um, and one of the people who helped me with the book and actually provided the cover for the book was Shokwe Lumumba, who was a mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. He was elected mayor in spring of 2013, but he passed eight months after his, um, after his election. Uh, he had a very progressive orientation. Um, in fact, he ran for city council in 2009, and his platform came from a people's assembly he formed in his ward. And so uh, he was promoting this concept of a people's assembly world, uh, worldwide, excuse me, citywide. And then uh, finally they were pushing uh, the development of economic cooperatives in Mississippi, uh, particularly in Jackson, uh, to, uh, because, you know, Mississippi is one of the poorest states in the United States. And so um, but he passed. So I'm writing a book. Uh, Shokwe was a, 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 a progressive attorney and he was also an activist himself. Uh, so I'm writing. A, a, I'm not writing a book. Excuse me. I'm um, um, collecting his speeches and writings to pick the best of them to do edited volume, but I'm also working with some other scholars to do interpretations of his contribution, particularly around his uh, political administration, but his work even prior to that. Uh, so we're looking at edit, uh, doing an edited volume on on his work, and I'm also working with some folks on a, a bi- political biography of Shokwe Lamomba. Uh, finally, um, I'm working on with uh, Dr. Karen Stafford and Jasmine Young we're working on an encyclopedia of black power. Uh, so those are some of the projects. I have several others we're working on. I'm 60 years old, so I'm trying to get it done while I still can. <laughs> Sounds like you're very busy then. <laughs> yeah, trying to be. Trying to be. Trying not to be idle. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.